everyone. Welcome back to Food Toxicology. I'm Greg Muller, the instructor for this course. And as we talk about food toxicology, there's a little bit of a disconnect because we talk about food, which is a good thing, and toxicology, which is rarely a good thing. And in fact, today's lecture, we're going to be talking about biotransformation and elimination of toxicants. And especially in the role of biotransformation, I want you to think back to old Hollywood and the cowboy movies. And you could always tell the good guys from the bad guys in the cowboy movies uh, by the color of the hat they wore. We had the white hats, the good guy, and the bad guy, the robber uh, with a black hat. In a certain sense, what we have in biotransformation and, and to a degree elimination of toxicants, we have the black hats and the white hats of chemistry and biochemistry in terms of this battle, this chemical warfare battle that is happening within an organism in terms of limiting the impact of a toxicant chemical in this whole process of biotransformation. Okay? Our learning objectives here uh, this morning, what we're going to do is try to explain the role of biotransformation in toxicokinetics. So what happens, again, we've got the adsorption, we've had a distribution, perhaps storage, and a little bit of release from storage in terms of potential intoxication. What's going to happen in terms of biotransformation? We're going to describe how biotransformation facilitates elimination of toxicants. We're going to do this by distinguishing between phase one and phase two reactions as they are categorized. We're going to try to define bioactivation how we can bioactivate, how we can take something that is an, uh, an endogenous substance with maybe mild to moderate potential for toxicosis, and in some cases, uh, the uh, biotransformation actually makes the chemical, the resulting metabolite, more toxic. We're going to try to as well talk about identifying the tissues and some of the factors involved in biotransformation, some of the enzymes. We're going to try to summarize the role of elimination in toxicokinetics, how we uh, aim to uh, release uh, ourselves from the body burden of these chemical substances as parent compounds or as metabolites. And we'll try to describe some of the processes occurring in the kidney, the liver, and the lung in terms of its relationship to the elimination of toxicants. Well, in terms of identifying biotransformation, it is a metabolic processes, and metabolism in and of itself is the sum of these biochemical reactions occurring to a molecule within the body. So we have uh, anabolic or building up types of metabolism. We have catabolic. And so when you think about a biotransformation, a metabolic process that allows to transfer a chemical, a biologically based process, some of these can be anabolic in terms of making the, the molecule bigger. Some can be catabolic or making the molecule smaller in terms of breaking it down. Some of this metabolism can occur in the cytoplasm or in specific organelles uh, within the cell. And it, uh, it will uh, occur differently on a cell-by-cell -cell type basis. Some of the storage that we talked about last time will affect the body's ability to biotransform and eliminate. Uh, for example, if something has been sequestered in the bone or the lipid, it allows for it to actually uh, be uh, far away from the potential biotransformation. Now, you can think of this perhaps in, in two, two uh, aspects. One aspect is perhaps this storage allows for the sequestration of very toxic components 
that actually uh, would impact uh, the organism uh, in a very dramatic way. It, it is shunted. If you remember our distribution matrix, uh, our computer uh, engineering di diagram of distribution and storage, how it can get shunted away from uh, perhaps receptors of particular uh, toxic consequences. And so bone and lipid may actually have a good uh, uh, role in terms of storing this. And some of that actually is a fallback to how we store uh, various nutrients and vitamins and, in fact, in lipid energy supplies in terms of survival of the organism. In terms of biotransformation, we can define that as the process that changes substances from hydrophobic to hydrophilic to aid in elimination. And several times during this course, and you'll hear me say it several times more, uh, we can refer to this as grease to salt. Uh, taking greasy molecules, uh, something that is going to leave an oil slick on water, if you will, to salty molecules that will dissolve in water, okay? And that's a good way to think about the aims, the gross aims of biotransformation. Hydrophilic molecules are actually uh, less able to cross cellular membranes, and therefore they are fluid filterable by the kidneys. The major elimination routes that we're going to be concerned with are feces and urine. Uh, feces by biliary uh, elimination through first pass to the liver and uh, routing through the bile acids uh, into the bile duct into the gastrointestinal tract. The biological half-life, or T1 half, allows us to compare rates of removal for various types of toxicants or various types of uh, exogenous compounds uh, such as pharmaceuticals. Um, and for example, uh, as we've said uh, a couple of times, sometimes we want to maintain a therapeutic concentration. When your doctor gives you a prescription and it says take two tablets uh, twice daily the, uh, for seven to ten days, uh, they tell you to do that to maintain the therapeutic concentration so that the particular pathogen, for instance, if it's an antibiotic, will have a response to that high concentration or relatively high concentration in your body fluids. Now in terms of biotransformation reactions, uh, we group them as phase one and phase two. Phase one is a functional group modification and phase two is a conjugation. Okay. Now the goals of these reactions are to produce water-soluble metabolites. Water-soluble metabolites primarily for urinary elimination. It also allows us to uh, activate natural and endogenous compounds for normal function. So sometimes, for instance, if we have a highly fat-soluble uh, 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 chemical compound that is required for biosynthesis to be utilized by the organism, these biotransformation reactions allow that first step in its metabolic cycle to happen. Okay? So that's why the liver is important. It's shunting all of these different uh, endogenous and exogenous chemicals uh, as uh, primary building blocks, if you will, uh, some for the molecules of life, uh, some for energy, some as nutrients uh, to allow for the organism to survive. Some of these compounds, uh, unfortunately, in terms of toxicants, will undergo a bioactivation, and this is where the biotransform metabolite will actually be more toxic than the original compound. And typically when I say more toxic, uh, I'm going to indicate that as meaning uh, more reactive or more 
uh, receptor-oriented in terms of its potential outcome. And we'll give you some uh, molecular uh, examples of this sort of process. Now, the results of biotransformation broadly, we can do many things in this uh, metabolism of chemical compounds. We can increase the toxicity via toxic metabolite. And so that's that bioactivation, intoxication in, to enhance the toxicant properties of the particular chemicals. Typically, though, we'd like to see it decrease the toxicity via metabolism of a potentially toxic uh, parent compound. Uh, so we enhance its uh, ability to be removed. Um, or we actually metabolize it in terms of taking a large molecule, cleaving it, and making it metabolites that are two smaller non-toxic fragments. Sometimes we'll have no effect on toxicity. In fact, the parent compound uh, and its metabolites uh, may actually have equal or somewhat equal uh, impact on the organism. Sometimes we'll uh, actually uh, find that we can take uh, endogenous compounds and metabolize them, uh, and sometimes uh, these can be intoxicated, intoxicating as well. Now, if I put this out in terms of a graphic or a cartoon, in terms of the relationship of phase one and phase two to final elimination, you can see that uh, the phase one reductions, where we actually change the molecule, we change functional groups on the molecule, primarily through oxidation reduction or hydrolysis to enhance polarity. Now, at that stage, we've enhanced polarity, and sometimes if we're talking about po uh, polar or very polar substrate, uh, we can even make it more polar, or in fact, it's able to be eliminated very, very rapidly in and of itself. And so it can be directly eliminated. Sometimes uh, that change of the functional groups will actually set it up for a phase two conjugation synthesis. We've taken one of the functional groups and we've actually modified it so that it is now able to be transformed uh, in a conjugation reaction to make it a very polar chemical prior to elimination. And again, we'll see some of these uh, demonstrations of some of these categories and reactions. In terms of the phase one processes, these are um, facilitated by the enzymes of biotransformation. I'm not going to give you all of them. I'm going to give you a few uh, uh, classifications. Oxidation is the most important uh, biotransformation process. And if you remember from freshman chemistry and oxidation, we add oxygen or remove hydrogen uh, and typically will increase the valence uh, associated with a particular chemical compound. Uh, some of the enzymes associated with oxidative processes in the body are cytochrome P450, MFO or mixed function oxidases, uh, alcohol dehydrogenase, uh, oxidases of various kinds and, and various others, sort of, again, oxidases enzymes that oxidize. For reduction, it's a less important part of biotransformation, but still uh, uh, available. Uh, in, ox in reduction, we're going to remove oxygen add uh, hydrogen or uh, decrease the valence uh, of the chemical. And these enzymes are typically referred to as reductases, enzymes that help or aid and assist in reduction. We'll also find a, a broad category of biotransformation called hydrolysis. Uh, these typically are for chemicals that react spontaneously uh, or exothermically uh, with uh, uh, water. Sometimes they're assisted by uh, enzymes. Uh, you add uh, a water to the molecule. This will happen via esterases, phosphatases, and other sorts of enzymes. 
Now, this gives you an idea of some of the reactions that we might find in phase one reactions. Uh, if we have like an N oxidation from an amine group, uh, uh, we can have uh, an S oxidation, carbonyl reduction, uh, ester hydrolysis, desulfuration, uh, dehydrogenation. Uh, these are chemical uh, reactions that this molecule is going to be uh, nominally less poor than the other side of the reaction. The idea is to uh, enhance the polarity uh, of the chemical, and these are more water-soluble, and the functional groups uh, in most cases are a bit more reactive. In terms of the next consequence of biotransformation, we have the phase two reactions. Uh, these are uh, have uh, two 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 components. Not only the enzymes uh, that drive it, but uh, since they're conjugation reactions, we actually have to have a cofactor. And so, typically, we're going to have a transferase plus a cofactor. The enzyme catal catalyzes uh, the reaction. Uh, enzymes uh, don't get consumed; they just assist in the chemical reaction. The cofactor donates the group, uh, typically a group that's going to enhance its water solubility. Uh, some of these groups include uh, glucuronic acid, glutathione, sulfate, uh, acetyl groups, methyl groups. These get uh, added onto uh, a reactive site on the molecule. What happens in this uh, phase two uh, biotransformation is we increase the size uh, of the molecule and uh, its polarity, uh, increasing size, increasing polarity will aid in its ability to be excreted, especially via urinary excretion. Now, in terms of some of these cofactors, these are the groups that get donated. This is the molecule glutathione. And you can see a general trend here as we start talking about some of these phase two cofactors, that we have a fairly large molecular apparatus, and, and glutathione is a classic example of this, to donate a fairly small substrate here, uh, a sulfur group, okay? And so you'll see that in terms of glutathione being a cofactor. This particular cofactor is acetyl-CoA, acetyl-coenzyme A. Uh, and down here is the group that's going to be donated. Uh, you can see it by the, uh, uh, the lighter blue on your screens, uh, on your slide set. Here donating the acetyl group. Uh, in terms of uh, PAPS, another phase two cofactor, this is phosphoadenosine 5-phosphosulfate. Again, a particularly large apparatus here in terms of the, the whole cofactor. Uh, what it's donating is over here is just a sulfate group. And so this, uh, again, is a transport mechanism, a molecular cofactor that allows to transport this to the site for phase two conjugation. UDP-GA, or uridine diphosphoglucuronic acid. Uh, a fairly long uh, and involved uh, uh, molecular name that tells me that it's going to be donating a sugar group, in this case a glucose group, uh, cleaved here at the oxygen to uh, add a sugar group, a highly polar water-soluble group, uh, to something that is uh, perhaps uh, less polar in terms of a parent compound. Well, we can take a look at all of these cofactors in phase one, phase two metabolism in the metabolic biotransformation of some uh, example compounds. Here's a classic example uh, in benzene metabolism. Benzene is an aromatic hydrocarbon over here on, on this part of the slide. Uh, it's a solvent. It's, uh, a, it's in gasoline. It's one of the uh, uh, more, more 
toxic components of concern in gasoline and industrial solvents. Uh, when I was in sophomore chemistry, uh, uh, we used to not understand or know uh, the uh, potential toxicity of benzene uh, and its potential carcinogenicity. Um, and uh, we used to actually wash our hands in it. Uh, we've come a long way since that time. But in terms of uh, its biotransformation, the first step is uh, uh, in terms of a uh, uh, phase one, uh, it's an epoxidation uh, via the enzyme uh, cytochrome P450. This uh, epoxide, this is a classic example of toxication where this first primary metabolite is of greater toxic reactivity, greater toxicity than the parent compound. Uh, and its reactivity is of great concern in terms of carcinogenesis. In terms of downstream uh, biotransformation, you can see from this graphic that it can go off in three or four major directions. Uh, we can produce uh, a phenol just via some hydrolysis or reaction of that hypoxide in, a, in an aqueous environment. Uh, with UDP glutathione, we can actually uh, take that phenolic group and transfer it into a sugar group, uh, a glucuronide. Um, with PAPS, uh, we can uh, change that to a sulfate group. The epoxide can actually, uh, via hydratase uh, enzymatic reaction, go to a dihydrodiol, uh, and again, enhance polarity and therefore uh, water solubility. Um, with glutathione and glutathione transferase, uh, go to a glutathione uh, metabolite as well. And so if you count off the numbers of chemicals, not only the parent chemical, we have one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, and of which six or so might be actually observable uh, if you were to take a plasma sample of somebody that was sufficiently intoxicated uh, with benzene. And so this gives you a sense of the variability um, and the, the uh, potential biotransformation consequences. One parent compound, many potential metabolites. Aniline, uh, give you an idea of a uh, somewhat reduced compound. We're going to oxidize with cytochrome P450. This is an N-hydroxylation uh, reaction uh, prior to phase two conjugation with this particular chemical compound. You'll see a dealkylation. Here's a chemical called dimethylpropylamine. Again, oxidation with cytochrome P450. Coming up with a methylpropylamine and acetaldehyde prior to uh, phase two biotransformation. Another example is a free radical generation as an intermediate step. This is uh, a uh, toxication reaction or an activation. In this case, it's tetrachloromethane, um, tetrachloromethane solvent uh, with an uh, NADH and uh, cytochrome P450. Uh, and then a reductase, we end up with a free radical, this toxic free radical. Uh, is extremely reactive and goes into your antioxidant system uh, with glutathione and glutathione peroxidase in terms of the ability to essentially put the fire out of this particular free radical. In this case study, this is a naturally occurring compound associated uh, not only with uh, uh, animal toxicity, but it has been associated with human toxicity. Uh, typically, though, it's uh, associated with uh, rodenticides um, in terms of a natural compound and our observation of nature. Uh, in this particular case, we're looking at fluorocitrate and kangaroos. 
Fluorocitrate is actually a naturally occurring compound in uh, some legume plants in Western Australia in this particular case, and I think I've talked about its occurrence in South America and the Amazon as well in some uh, plants. Uh, it's in the gastrolobium and oxylobium species uh, of uh, plants. It's highly lethal. Its toxic dose is one milligram for a 1,080 kilogram animal. And so you'll hear that uh, because of the way the toxic toxicity uh, calculation worked out in, in this. Uh, you'll hear it referred to as compound 1080. Uh, compound 1080 has actually uh, been manufactured as a rodenticide. The leaf concentrations of this particular toxin, floral citrate, it doesn't sound like a particularly complex chemical, but you'll see how it has a, a very unique uh, interaction uh, in this case with the Krebs cycle. Uh, but the leaf concentration can be as high as 2.6 grams per kilogram, very high concentration of a very toxic compound. Uh, the rat and gray kangaroo of uh, Western Australia, if you think of this as a forage plant, a potential forage plant, uh, where it occurs in Western Australia, uh, these animals have evolved a resistance. They do an in vivo defluorination reaction with glutathione. Uh, unfortunately, uh, kangaroos from other parts of the country have not successfully adapted because they have not been exposed evolutionarily. Uh, and if there are ever transplant uh, repopulation programs, there can be some toxic outcomes in terms of the exposure of these uh, non-regional uh, animals to this particular plant species. The way this happens, uh, and again, it's uh, as a rodenticide, is fluoroacetic acid. Uh, it's used uh, commercially, uh, sometimes referred to as compound 10-adium or sodium fluoroacetate. Uh, what actually happens uh, with this chemical uh, is with uh, uh, the uh, coacetyl enzyme, uh, it will create fluoroacetyl-CoA. Uh, this particular enzyme is changed in that we, instead of having a hydrogen here, have a fluorine atom there. Uh, that fluorine atom, uh, as opposed to acetyl-CoA, uh, will take uh, uh, citrate and make it to uh, a, uh, a fluorocitrate molecule. And so we no longer then have uh, citrate available for the Krebs cycle in terms of micro, uh, my, mitochondrial uh, energy production. And so uh, as we come from oxaloacetate to fluorocitrate, uh, this fluorine here upsets the uh, uh, passage of uh, citrate via aconitase to uh, cis-aconitate. Uh, it doesn't allow this next passage, so it stops the Krebs cycle here, um, disallows mitochondrial energy production with fairly disastrous and toxic uh, consequences until, uh, in terms of its potential toxicity. Some other toxicants in terms of biotransformation. Uh, we'll do a lecture in terms of uh, naturally occurring uh, uh, toxins in, in the food system. We'll talk a lot about mycotoxins or mold or fungi uh, induced toxins in the food system. One of these toxins associated uh, with uh, Fusarium trichothecene mycotoxins, uh, it's found on corn and barley. It's DON or deoxynivalenol or also known uh, by its common name as vomitoxin because of the, the clinical outcome of exposure to this particular chemical. But you can see that this uh, very toxic compound has an epoxide group uh, that does get uh, biotransformed uh, into a, uh, a methane group 
in terms of the primary stages of biotransformation. Another mycotoxin is aflatoxin B1 from the aspergillus uh, fungi. Uh, it's found uh, and monitored, actually, in terms of food safety in corn and peanuts, uh, a little bit in terms of cottonseed, especially for human consumption. This is aflatoxin B1, a fairly complex uh, uh, chemical. Uh, it's carcinogenic. Um, it's a hepatic metabolite, uh, Q1. You can see that uh, it has actually uh, adopted a uh, hydroxyl group, uh, increasing its polarity. Uh, aflatoxin, in terms of its biotransformation, goes through several stages. In some livestock, like in dairy cows, um, it goes all the way to aflatoxin M, or it's the primary metabolite found in milk that is monitored in terms of safety of the milk supply. Well, we all know that we're not supposed to uh, barbecue our meats on the grill uh, and, uh, uh, and blacken them. And it has a lot to do with the development of uh, uh, polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons. In this particular case, this is benzopyrene, one of many uh, uh, PAHs. Uh, it's a uh, well-known environmental carcinogen. Some of the uh, areas, this bay region uh, that we may discuss in future lectures is one of the active areas of benzopyrene. But in terms of its biotransformation, here is a classic uh, nonpolar uh, chemical compound. Uh, we study these compounds in cell cultures. Uh, we find that uh, with uh, uh, rat hepatocytes, we can develop the sulfate or the glucuronic acid uh, metabolite via phase one, followed by phase two conjugation uh, biotransformation. Well, what happens uh, when we get out of the organic domain and into the inorganic domain? And I'll several times during this course use lead toxicity as an example of heavy metal toxicity, although we'll talk about some others like mercury. Um, but in terms of heavy metal toxicity, it's nice to know um, how uh, heavy metals such as lead actually can be have their uh, toxic impact and uh, set up for elimination, storage, uh, and distribution within the organism. Uh, typically, what we find is that lead is absorbed via the calcium channels as a divalent uh, ion. What that means is that very stable forms of lead, like lead oxides, will be less bioavailable than perhaps lead salts uh, that are, are highly uh, uh, more soluble and therefore uh, bioavailable. Leads are, uh, lead is a, capable of reacting with a variety of binding sites. Typically, uh, calcium uh, binding sites are ones that are set up for uh, dications. Uh, it will actually, because of its size difference and because of the number of F orbitals it'll have, uh, change the protein configuration and sometimes precipitate out proteins as the initial stage of some of its toxic effects. Uh, when you do that, uh, you will destroy proteins that provide valuable functions, and those could be uh, hormones or receptors or uh, transport proteins. Some of the specific toxic effects that we find with lead toxicity depend upon uh, the reactions with the ligands that are essential uh, with the living system. Some of these ligands uh, that are reactive with lead uh, are, include uh, sulfhydryl groups. And in fact, we have a metallothionine group of molecules, proteins, that uh, have reactive sulfhydryl groups to manage or uh, moderate uh, heavy metal toxicity. Uh, these are primarily the most reactive groups in terms of uh, uh, some of these metals and metalloids. 
Um, we also have uh, reactive amino groups, phosphate groups, uh, imidazole groups, and hydroxyl groups of enzymes and essential proteins, not only for direct reaction, but also for complexation. And so this uh, can have a variable effect. It can be a dose-related effect uh, as well. The sensitivity and the degree of interference uh, will determine some of the clinical effects that we might see on lead exposure. Uh, in terms of digestion or respiration, we have the potential for absorption. In the liver, we have the uh, detoxification set up for elimination, uh, kidney for excretion, uh, typically of uh, compounds that have been uh, uh, bound or turned over in normal catabolic uh, uh, biomolecule uh, processes. In terms of how we deal with heavy metal toxicity, we typically will use antidotes that compete uh, as ligands. Uh, for example, uh, EDTA, EDTA, ethylenediamine tetraacetic acid, is used as a chelating therapy reagent, uh, therapeutic reagent. Uh, metallic lead is uh, absorbed most efficiently uh, by the respiratory tract. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, and in fact, it's uh, about 10% of ingested lead is absorbed. Uh, it's absorbed uh, primarily in the small intestines. As I said before, lead salts are very soluble and therefore uh, in, in gastric juices and therefore uh, absorbed at a fairly high rate. In other words, its bioavailability is sufficiently high. Um, there will be a transport uh, from the plasma to the blood cells, uh, primarily in the erythrocytes and uh, some of the proteins associated with erythrocytes. Uh, it does then change the ability of uh, erythrocytes to uh, transport uh, oxygen, uh, and uh, it does precipitate some of the proteins associated with erythrocytes. Uh, after oral ingestion in general, and this is a generalized set of statistics, we find about 60% of lead with long-term exposure going to the bone, and that can be uh, hair and teeth also. Uh, in childhood, lead monitoring, because children will lose their teeth. Uh, some studies have examined uh, the uh, primary teeth of, of children uh, to look for evidence of uh, uh, lead exposure. Uh, and uh, in one study I know of uh, that we may talk about this semester, there was a correlation established between the lead levels found in their childhood teeth and their behaviors uh, later on in life, uh, indicators such as uh, the ability to, uh, the, to have uh, disruptive personalities, perhaps uh, to have criminal records was associated with lead exposure as a uh, child. Um, Four percent uh, binds in the kidneys, uh, in the uh, renal tubules, and we'll talk about that in terms of toxic organ toxicity. About three uh, percent binds in the intestinal wall. Now, in terms of some of the endpoints uh, of uh, lead toxicity, we find uh, sulfhydryl enzyme inhibition, so the binding of metals with lead. If you recall from freshman chemistry, sulfur groups, uh, sulfide uh, KSP of lead. Uh, typically are very, very low, uh, which means the solubility of these compounds is extremely low, highly reactive. Um, what we find is that potassium transport in red cells is inhibited uh, and will result in anemia. There'll be porphyria, in other words, uh, the um, uh, ability of uh, released uh, hemoglobin and other porphyrins to actually uh, come through the urine 
uh, via some of the uh, nephrotoxic effects and hemotoxic effects of uh, lead. It's excreted uh, chiefly in the feces and the urine, and again, the therapeutic agents are uh, calcium EDTA, penicillamine, and BAL, or British anti-lewicide, also known as dimercaptrol. Uh, you can see this chelating agent in the figure on this particular slide. This is a case study, uh, this is associated in somewhat recent history, 1991 in Alabama of lead exposure. Uh, this case study is about elevated blood lead levels associated with illicitly distilled alcohol. Again, this is from Mortality Morbidity Weekly Report. In this particular case, uh, these folks that were uh, setting up these uh, moonshine stills, if you will, uh, using automobile radiators. Uh, automobile radiators uh, are uh, soldered together with a high lead content solder. Uh, during this distillation process, there was leaching of the lead into uh, the alcohol and uh, uh, observation of lead poisoning of some uh, adult individuals associated with this. Uh, in, this uh, in 1991, there were actually eight uh, presentations of uh, elevated blood lead levels in local uh, hospitals. I think this is Montgomery, Alabama. Um, nine patients had been uh, evaluated uh, previously at the hospital. Uh, some of the manifestations included seizures, uh, anemia, encephalopathy, which is generalized uh, uh, brain pathology, uh, upper extremity weakness, and abdominal colic. Uh, the blood lead levels ranged, uh, were very, very high from 16 micrograms per deciliter to 259 micrograms per deciliter, a median of about 67. Uh, seven of these patients required hospitalization from 2 to 18 days. Uh, some of them had uh, chelation therapy. Uh, one of the patients with a median blood lead level uh, in the very toxic zone of 67 actually died during hospitalization due to not only the alcohol problems but some of the other hospitalization complications associated with the illness. Uh, the ingestion in terms of the retrospective study of these particular patients amounted to about uh, a half to uh, uh, one and a half liters per day of moonshine. The lead contents of uh, moonshine that was confiscated, not necessarily from these individuals, but from nearby stills, uh, showed that uh, it was about uh, 7,000 to 10,000 uh, parts per billion. These are very high concentrations of what must be considered to be fairly soluble lead in terms of its bioavailability. Um, no real blood, uh, no lead in terms of the local drinking water. They did a back calculation that consumption of about half a liter a day of, of moonshine would uh, give an individual a steady state blood lead level of about 190 micrograms per deciliter, a very toxic level of blood lead. Well, in terms of uh, elimination of toxicants, we have several uh, pathways. They uh, include urinary, fecal, respiratory, and some others. Uh, we can actually elim eliminate toxicants via saliva, uh, sweat, uh, milk production, uh, in terms of transfer of the child, uh, potentially through hair, uh, nails, and skin, and through the CSF uh, um, in terms of a, 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 a one of the pathways of elimination, not final elimination. Um, for example, in terms of uh, hair analysis, sometimes you will hear of uh, physicians uh, investigating a toxicosis, taking hair uh, samples, whether that be uh, from an animal or from a human, 
And because hair grows at a certain rate, uh, they can uh, look at uh, uh, along that hair um, and take subsamples and see if there was a periodic exposure and then give an idea in a generalized way of when that exposure occurred in terms of the recent history of the patient. In terms of kidney, uh, kidney physiology, um, this is a, a cartoonographic uh, of, of the kidney. Uh, this is an organ that is set up for filtration, uh, not only physical filtration in terms of pores, but also membrane filtration uh, of organics. And, this really helps us uh, keep uh, many of our uh, nutrients uh, uh, and uh, many of our ions in balance. Uh, it's an important, extraordinarily important organ. Uh, in terms of the macrophysiology, uh, we have the renal cortex on the outside. It's made up of these nephrons, and we'll talk about the substructure called a nephron here. Um, everything kind of drains from the outside, and you see where the blood transport, uh, the venous and arterial blood supply, is in the periphery in the renal cortex. This is where the exchange happens in terms of uh, uh, eliminating uh, some of the, uh, the metabolic products uh, and balancing some of the ions, some of the nutrients, uh, sugars, minerals, uh, proteins associated with the, that are in the blood supply. These happen in the periphery, in the, in the cortex area. In terms of the filtration processes, the renal medulla uh, allow it to start draining down into the calyx. The calyx actually drains to the ureter, finally, uh, in terms of urinary uh, collection in the bladder uh, prior to elimination. Um, this gives you an idea, non-cartoon, this is actually a bovine dissection I did, uh, give you an idea of what this actually looks like when you take a, a look at the tissue. For those of you that haven't had uh, much uh, physiology in your academic preparation, I would invite you to spend some time uh, at the butcher shop uh, or at your local grocery store and uh, actually purchase uh, some organ meats and uh, do at-home dissection, kind of get an idea of what these structures from a macroscopic and uh, not necessarily microscopic but smaller and kind of make a linkage in terms of so that you know and understand what they look like. Again, the renal cortex, kind of a smooth tissue in terms of uh, an observation as it drains down in terms of the exchange in the renal medulla and finally drainage into the ureter. You can see the calyx formation here in terms of drainage uh, passage pipelines, if you will, from one down into the ureter. Now, where it really all happens in terms of renal filtration is in the microstructure, in the nephron. This cartoon is a blow-up of what uh, an idealized nephron looks like. And if you follow fluid flow, you can see for yourself that there are some basic fundamental biological and physical processes going on here that allow separation of uh, concentration gradient separation uh, of uh, uh, elimination products into the urine stream. Uh, it all starts out in terms of the blood supply uh, coming in, the venous uh, blood supply and the arterial blood supply. There's an exchange here. This is called Bowman's capsule. This is the primary exchange. Uh, in what is called the glomerulus. Glomerulus actually does have some uh, pores in it that allow for certain sizes, typically small uh, sized molecules, to actually physically transport uh, across uh, the membrane. And uh, at that point in time, we now have not only fluids, but also some substrates uh, that have been transported. Now, over uh, as we follow this down, we have a proximate tubule um, that is draining the, uh, uh, the um, 
uh, filtrate at that point in time. And you'll notice that this is a highly vascularized zone and it allows for uh, continued uh, membrane transfer of uh, both in both directions of, of materials. Uh, as we go down here into Lupa Henley and then back up into the distal uh, tubule, you can kind of see that we have a tremendous pathway here to allow for membrane transport. And this is a diffusion gradient across a membrane, uh, osmotic pressure, if you will, that allows the balance of the fluids that are in the uh, venous system to be in balance with what's in the urine system. Folks with uh, kidney uh, dysfunction have a difficult time doing uh, body water balance in terms of uh, elimination. Um, as you finally come down, you actually start um, uh, developing a urine stream in the renal cortex. There's still some membrane transport going on. And finally, as you get down in the renal medulla, um, the active uh, transport of urine prior to elimination. The way this looks, if we uh, take a two-dimensional representation of this three-dimensional uh, nephron uh, via histology, we can kind of get a sense of the relative sizes and relationships. And again, uh, things like tubules uh, will look differently if we slice them end-on versus if we slice them crosswise as they're making their twists and turns within the organelles. The glomerulus, as you can kind of see, we see the Bowman's, uh, the capsule and the glomerulus uh, in here in terms of the twists and turns and how they look uh, if we look at them sideways or look at it end on in terms of the uh, uh, large sort of transport uh, inside of the pipe, if you will. Uh, the same thing with the tubules in terms of the transport of the pipes and the membranes uh, of the surface of the interactions in a nephron. Now, in terms of urinary excretion, we have three sequential processes that happen, and it's diagrammed out here in this particular uh, uh, colored uh, image, colored cartoon. Again, we've got the, the Bowman's capsule and the glomerulus where we get the primary release of some of these uh, uh, dissolved uh, substrates uh, and water uh, into uh, the tubule. Um, the processes uh, that follow in sequence are glomerular filtration uh, followed by tubular secretion. So we get a, a resecretion here happening in terms of glucose, amino acids, some small molecules, minerals, and water secreting back across the membrane surface in the proximal uh, tubule. Uh, as you move on, you get some exchange of ammonia uh, coming out of the uh, vascular system, uh, creatinine medications and whatnot crossing the membrane. Uh, down into the loop and finally into the distal tubule reabsorption of some of these uh, contaminants back and forth or uh, dissolved substrates back and forth to give osmotic balance uh, between the two fluid systems. Uh, then This then allows for a setup uh, in terms of tubular reabsorption in the tubule of some of these things across again the membrane barrier. Uh, finally the production of urine and uh, excretion elimination there. Fecal excretion, uh, although less important uh, than urinary, is still is an important part uh, of our uh, excretion uh, system in terms of uh, uh, getting toxicants to leave the organism. Uh, we find that the major uh, process is excretion in the bile to the intestine. Uh, this cartoon down here in terms of here's our liver, here's our gallbladder. 
the bile is uh, actually uh, made in all of the uh, liver lobules in terms of manufacturing. It drains via the bile ducts in the liver. It collects in the bile, uh, uh, in the uh, bile ducts and in the gallbladder, finally being uh, discharged or uh, excreted into uh, the intestine. And again, because we have the potential for enterohepatic recirculation, we have the portal vein system here that's actually allowing all the nutrients that were absorbed in the intestinal tract to be transported back. Again, this is about 80% of the blood flow uh, into the liver is venous blood flow from the portal vein, and we get a potential recycling. Uh, there will be some elimination here. It does allow for active transport of the toxicants, uh, not only the parents, but also the metabolites. Uh, some of these highly soluble phase two metabolites, the large ionized molecules actually end up in the bile. Uh, we do have some potential in terms of fecal excretion uh, directly uh, into the lumen of the GI tract, uh, and this is from diffusion from the capillaries uh, that uh, vascularize uh, the uh, absorption uh, and exchange of solutes associated with the intestinal tract. Finally, uh, in terms of uh, uh, types of uh, uh, elimination, we have the potential with chemicals, whether it be parent compounds or metabolites, that have high vapor pressure, we have the ability to release those via exhaled air. And so these gas phase xenobiotics, uh, you may or may not have heard of uh, certain people with undergoing uh, certain metabolic challenges, uh, some of the toxins that uh, are associated with that, and it may not be the result of, of toxicosis, it may be the result of metabolic disease. We'll actually have breath that uh, uh, is, uh, uh, contains uh, the, these metabolites. Uh, one of the areas of toxicology I work in, which is selenium toxicosis, some of the metabolic byproducts of selenium exposure actually are volatile products. And these gas-phase selenium compounds actually have an odor of garlic. And so one of the aspects of uh, these gas-phase exhaled uh, compounds is, is garlic breath associated with selenium toxicosis. There is a passive diffusion from the blood uh, to the alveoles. Um, to be a concentration gradient, uh, again, across that membrane and these extremely high um, surface areas that you have in terms of membrane transport. I give a number here uh, in terms of an adult of 100 to 140 square meters of membrane surface area in an adult lung. This does allow one to uh, actively transport across that membrane in the same way we actively transport uh, carbon dioxide across that membrane in terms of a concentration gradient from our respiratory processes. So that gives us a, an idea uh, in terms of the biotransformation and elimination processes that set us up for uh, challenges uh, from, from, from toxins and toxicants. Uh, the next time, what we'll talk about is uh, some of the uh, target organ toxicity associated with specific chemicals that uh, are, are known to attack typical or specific uh, organelles or organs in terms of things like uh, hepatotoxicity, nephrotoxicity, and neurotoxicity. Until that time, we'll see you later. Thanks.